Good morning. Would you stand? We're going to read Exodus. We're in 30, chapter 32. I'm going to read the first six verses. We'll do a responsive reading in Psalm 115, and then we'll get into our text this morning. So Exodus chapter 32, I'm reading from the New King James Version. You might have a different one. Follow along with me as best you can. Here we go. Now, when the, And by the way, we're going to go through the whole chapter, just reading it verse by verse. I'll comment a little bit. So keep your Bibles open through the Bible study. I'll put the other verses up on the screen that I have. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We're going to look at, the, at Flee from Idolatry in Psalm 115, classic psalm on this, on this topic of idolatry. So I'll read the first and odd verses if you would join together in reading the second and even. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May you be blessed by the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. Lord, we praise you, for from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. We stand in your presence to give glory and honor to you by giving the same honor to your word and, giving up, and praying you would give us ears to hear that we might hear what the Spirit is saying this morning. The things that I've prepared, Lord, please break them fresh, feed us, we are hungry. You've given to us our spiritual food in your word by your Holy Spirit that we might grow. 
I pray your blessing over this to us as believers. If there's anyone listening, your blessing into their lives with the truth that can save their souls and deliver them from the emptiness of a life without you. Please. That's our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So idolatry in Judaism and Christianity is the worship of someone or something other than God as though it were God. The first commandment, the first of the Ten Commandments prohibits idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm going to give you a few quotes today just to help us in this whole area of idolatry. And some of these things I hope will stir you and get you thinking about your own life and the idolatrous tendencies that we all have away from God. Origen said this. He's an early Christian scholar. He said, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, for this for him is God, unquote. Dwight L. Moody said, you don't have to go to a heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. So my question here is, why would a person do that? Why would I do that? It's very simple. I'm a sinner and so are they. And so John Calvin wrote this, quote, Every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. Man's mind is like a story of idolatry and superstition, so much so that if a man believes his own mind, it is certain that he will forsake God and forge some idol in his own brain, unquote. We are all born in sin, which, admitted or not, comes with this inherited fallen nature that demands independence from anyone or anything that would tell us what to do, what to think, or how to live. Why is that? Because we do not want to be accountable to God. We don't want to be accountable to a creator in our sinful, fallen nature. We don't want to submit to God's sovereign authority as he's laid it out in his word. We do not want to acknowledge our complete dependence upon him for our very every breath. R.C. Sproul said this, quote, Loving a holy God is beyond our moral power. The only kind of God we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy God, an idol made by our own hands. Unless we are born of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds his holy love in our hearts, unless he stoops in his grace to change our hearts, we will not love him. To love a holy God requires grace strong enough to pierce our hardened hearts and awaken our dying souls, unquote. And I say, Lord, like Paul told Timothy, we took, let's look at this yesterday, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. We are called according to his purpose and grace into our lives. So idolatry redefines God by fashioning him into our own likings and likeness. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Your, and I like this, your functional savior. Idolatry is an affront to God's holy and righteous character and our accountability to it. That's idolatry. Romans 1 puts it this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed priests and creeping things. That's the fallen, that's what sin did. Death in relationship to God. So to worship anything other than the true God is to suppress the truth about him. To worship anything other than the only true God is disingenuous and it is self-deceiving. To worship anything other than the only true God is dangerous and listen, demonic. To worship anything other than the only true God, my, my word, is really dumb. <laughs> if you think about it. A.W. told us that the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him, unquote. A.W. told us again, the God of the modern evangelical rarely ast- astonishes anybody. He manages to stay pretty much with the Constitution. Never break our bylaws. He's a very well-behaved God and very denominational and very much like one of us. We ask him to help us when we're in trouble and look to him to watch over us when we're asleep. This is a fascinating quote, which I think is worthy of our meditation. The God of the modern evangelical isn't a God I could have much respect for, unquote. Now, for a summary commentary on Exodus chapter 32, we go to the best commentary on the Bible, and that's the Bible itself. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have that. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And here it is. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as is written. And this is quoted now from our chapter this morning, chapter 32, verse 6 in Exodus. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He goes on. Now, nor let us commit sexual morality, nor let us tempt Christ, nor let us complain. Now, all these things happened to them as an example, as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, begins as this idolatry and then these other things, and saying this, this story in Exodus chapter 2 was written by Moses through the hand of God that we might learn. Are you going to learn some things this morning? I believe that we are. And this whole area of idolatry needs to be sort of taken in a little bit. What is it, and how is it, and why is that? So he says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're all susceptible. No temptation has has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful. Say amen. God is faithful. 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will, what will listen, with the temptation, they're going to be there, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What is that way of escape? It's worshiping and honoring God for who he is. It's obedience to God. It's submission to his authority. It's walking through that with God as the central person being in my life and in your life. He goes on, verse 14. Therefore, I may be loved. Here it is again. Flee from idolatry. Who am I? What am I saying then, verse 19? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger? In other words, if that's going on, if we're, if we're not really realizing what's going on here and how God sees that and these spiritual dynamics of, the, of a demonic realm, God, because of his grace and love, will deal with us. And listen, he's stronger than we are. And he, as with the children of Israel, our example, he will deal with that in our lives to set us free from the bondage of idolatry. 1 John brings this whole thing to, to a fruition also in his epistle, which we just got done studying in, on Wednesday nights. He ends it with this, 1 John 5, 18. We know that whatever is born of God does not sin, does not continually practice sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself. And listen, the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked. John is bringing into this whole whole discussion the demonic realm that we are in opposition to. They are in opposition to God. And we know that the Son of God, listen, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and are in him who is true, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, then he says, this is the true and eternal life, the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. He ends the whole of his discussion about the love of God and the spirit of God and the wrestling we have. And he says, keep yourselves from idols. Spurgeon says this, turn to God from idols for the sword of his wrath that had been aimed at you has been sheathed in the heart of his son, Jesus. This is eternal life. And the arrows of his anger that had been put against your breast were loosed into the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins. Because he has died for you and you were forgiven, unquote. Keep yourselves from idols. Flee from idolatry. Tim Keller. It, idolatry, means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. There are a lot of good things, but what's the ultimate thing? Someone once said, it was John Corson said, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Well, I'm going to change that. The ultimate thing is to keep the ultimate thing, the ultimate thing. What is that, Jesus? Keep him where he is. He is God. The ultimate thing is in the song we sing. May I 
read this to you. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Keep yourselves from idols. Flee from idolatry. Keep your heart anchored in what Jesus has done for you because of who he is in loving you. So in Exodus 32, as we go through this, I'm going to share a few thoughts as we do. Here we go. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down, it said, down the mountain, the people gathered together, Exodus 3, 32, to Aaron and to him and said, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not what has become of him. What happened to Moses? He's gone 40 days. We, we, we're, we're, their impatience really is impatience with God. And it's not the first time they've been impatient with God by attacking Moses. And Aaron said to him, break off your golden earrings, which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So they broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. I'm reading this again because it just blows my mind. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron is left in charge. While Moses has gone to the mountain to meet with God. And what Aaron do, does, after seeing what he has seen, it's a bit crazy. Which goes to show you that miracles will not safeguard you from idolatry. They can become the idol. They can become the focus it also goes to show that weak leadership is detrimental to our need to be protected from our wayward ways into idolatry. The word of God is sharp and powerful. And that must be preached and taught continuously. We got to hear it even though it's not easy to hear, even this morning. Idolatry infects the whole family. Your sons, your daughters, your wives. Go take it from them too. It infects the whole of your family. And it gets even crazier. Aaron then takes this, these golden trinkets or whatever they are, earrings, and spends however long it takes to melt them and begin to mold them into a calf, a golden calf. And then they actually say, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, I know that as we're going out, there's no calves, golden calves in front of them. What was in front of them were insurmountable odds that the God of heaven, their God, the God of Israel, delivered them from. And yet, this is the God. Verse 5, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation, said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early in the morning on the next day, offered, listen, burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. 
See, no, we're not done with this craziness. To make it justifiable, they built an altar alongside of it and invite God now to join their party. Wow, yeah. And the next morning, they get up with the crack of dawn, they do their God thing, and then they begin this, listen, the language, this sensual, unrestrained orgy, running around naked, as though that would be okay with God. It's not okay with God. There are things that are not okay with God. You see, idolatry infects not only the family, but the whole of the community led astray. Idolatry invites all kinds of unrestrained orgies with sin, as though that's okay with God. Friends, it's not okay with God. No matter what the justification may be that I make, sin is not okay with God. Flee from idolatry. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, Go get down for your people whom you brought. Now, this, be, this is interesting. It's kind of comical in some way. God's now saying, they're your people, Moses. Moses said, no, they're your people, God. I didn't ask for this. <laughs> That's what's going on here. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see, notice, God hears every word, every syllable. He hears, he knows all things. Idolatry always corrupts. As someone said, whatever happens in Vegas never stays in Vegas. That's the truth. Idolatry always sets aside the commandments of God. It has to. Idolatry steals away the glory of the person of God. The glory of the power of God steals it away. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. God not only hears, he sees. And indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. Idolatry is unacceptable to God. Why? Because he's threatened by these gods? Perish the thought. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. But in Psalm 115, then it says, those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. It's unacceptable to God because that, those gods are a threat to us. They are a threat to us because they appeal to our stiff-necked people syndrome. Syndrome. They are a threat because of what they do to us, in us, and through us. They're a threat to see God will deal in holy severity. This passage we're going to read is chock full of needed exposition. 
We don't have time for that this morning, but we will get to it at some point. But I want to read it just because the same truths are here. We're talking about Israel and the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 11, verse 19, you will say that branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue... Do not continue unbelief will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Again, that's a lot of stuff right there. But the point is, behold the severity of God. Now, you may not like this, but God has a right to be angry with Israel as he is. And angry with us as a holy God who created all things. And so he says in chapter 30, I will consume them and will make you a great nation. Moses pleaded with the Lord his God. Moses begins pleading for the people. Now, at another time, he may well have said, really? White Mountain, start over with me again? I'm all in. But at this time, his care for the people, his concern for the people, was in this moment that God is giving to him this is, what I, this is what I'm going to do. And it kicks in, and he begins interceding for this idolatrous nation. Standing in the gap, he pleaded with God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought, there it is, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? So Moses is reminding God of his special relationship with the children of Israel and how he delivered them from Egypt. In other words, he's interceding on the basis of God's choice. Secondly, why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. He, Moses appeals to God on, on the basis of his trustworthiness. On the basis of his name, God's name. Third, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. He reminds and appeals to God on the basis of his promises, his oaths. And then we come to this very mysterious yet glorious verse. Verse 14. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now what I know is this. God was not listening to Moses and saying, you know what? I never thought about that. Uh, I, you know, I, let, me, let me think about that a little more. Let me, let me, let me I, I, I get what you're saying. I, let me. That's not what's going on here. God knows all things. He can learn nothing. So this word relent is not the repentance of a change of mind as though a character flaw. You can bank on that. Numbers 23, one of those wonderful, from a misled prophet named Balaam, 
God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? 1 Samuel, also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Malachi, for I am the Lord, I do not change. So, quote from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, quote, the word relented does not mean that God changed his mind, but that he embarked on another course of action. The Hebrew word naham suggests relief or comfort from a planned, undesirable course of action. In the Expository Bible's commentary, quote, as Moses championed the Lord's cause, the Lord relented, verse 14, In only two of the 38 instances in the Old Testament is this word used of men repenting. God repent, God's repentance or relenting is an anthropomorphism, a description of God in human forms, that aims at showing us that he can and does change in his actions and emotions to men when given proper grounds for doing so, and therefore he does not change in his basic integrity or character. The grounds for the Lord's repentance are three. One, intercession. Two, repentance of the people. And three, compassion, unquote. So Moses, this is just fascinating to me. It's mysterious, but it's incredible. Moses interceded to hold God to his word. And that's what God raised him up to do. It was God who raised Abraham up to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't go quite far enough in the lowering of the numbers. If there's 10, I'll spare it for 10. Didn't find 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. So it was destroyed. It was God who raised up Moses to intercede for Israel at this critical junction in their history. So it's mysterious to be sure. But it's a revelation that I hope will stir you to intercession. Stir me to intercession. God's course of action determined through intercession is for repentance and compassion. Repentance and compassion. Are, how are you interceding for those in your family, your spheres of influence, that you love, that you care about, and you look at their lives, and it's just a disaster as far as the Lord's concerned? Do you take this to heart that God listens, God sees, and when I go before him in intercession, praying for repentance. In fact, 2 Timothy says that God may grant them repentance. And that God in his great love and mercy will be compassionate to them. And save their souls and deliver them from whatever it is they're going through. It's through intercession. It's through praying. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain. And the two tablets of the testament are in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and the other side, they were written. This is the first time we hear it's both sides. Now, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So Joshua is wading down the mountain. Moses comes down. 
There's the, they're hearing the distant something going on in the camp. And Joshua is saying, they're either rejoicing because they're victorious or they're mourning because they've been defeated. And Moses, very discerning, says, no, no, they're partying. They're partying. So, it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. What Moses saw provoked him. And we also, we also know that sense. You see the, these things that are going on that are so contrary to God himself and the name of God and the righteousness of God and the holiness. And it should provoke within us anger toward these things that are demonically destroying people's lives. Then he took the calf when he had, that he had made, burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the, mount, on the water and made the children of Israel. Idolatry always ends in bitterness. I love what Charles Spurgeon said, quote, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else, unquote. So true. Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, they are, not, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that we shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. <laughs> and Moses going, really? Mo Aaron's got to do some quick thinking here. Some quick excuses. Number one, it's the people you gave me. They're set on evil. Or it's, you know, they said to me, or, I don't know, the calf just came out. Now, when Moses saw the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him, just the tribes of Levi, the tribe of Levi. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. This is a tragic, sad day. Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from an entrance to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man is opposed his son, his brother, sad. You're talking tragic. You see, idolatry is blinding, indefinite. That those who are actually in it, who, who's on the Lord's side? Just the tribe and all the others, they don't make the move. Because idolatry, as we read in Psalm 115, it's blinding, indefinite. The idolater becomes blind to seeing the truth. The idolater becomes deaf to hearing the truth. And the idolater is numbed 
to respond in your repentance because of the truth. Idolatry is deadly. It leaves one dead in his trespasses and sins with no deliverance from the God who calls them to repentance. Now it came to pass, verse 30, on that next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. I want to give you a little longer quote from Warren Wearsby. Quote, Moses called what they did a great sin, and his assessment was accurate. It was a great sin because of who committed it. The nation Israel, the chosen people of God, his special treasure. It was, a, it was great because of when and where they committed it. At Mount Sinai, after they had heard God's law and declared and seen God's glory revealed. It was a great sin because of what they had already experienced of the power and mercy of God. The judgments against Egypt, the deliverance at the Red Sea, the provision of the food and water, and the gracious leading of God by the pillar of cloud and fire. What they did was rebel against the goodness of the Lord. It's no wonder their sin provoked God to anger, unquote. Then Moses, verse 31, returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin. And have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Wow. I'll stand in their place. Some believe this refers to the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Which is mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, but then seven times in the book of Revelation. And Jesus said, I will not blot out the, from, to Sardis. I will not blot out their name from the book of life. They walk with me in white. They are worthy. Others suggest it refers to the census of the people. Now Moses is saying he's willing to die a premature death. So as not to have to endure the agony of a sinful, unforgiven people. Whatever it was, God rejected his offer. No, only one can stand in our place. That's Jesus. Even for Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. See, idolatry comes with consequences. Idolatry is costly. God will discipline his people. The death of 3,000. Some plague that continue. Listen. All with the goal to deliver them from the, from the bondage of idolatry. And it took a long, long time for God to do that. The captivity of 70 years cured them of idolatry. Even to this day. I want to close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. False gods patiently endure the existence of other false gods. Dagon can stand with Bel and Bel with Ashtaroth. How should stone and wood and silver be moved to indignation? But because God is the only living and true God, Dagon must fall before his ark. Bell must be broken and Ashtoreth must be consumed with fire. God never permits his people 
to sin successfully, unquote. May the Lord bless us with a greater freedom in seeing and understanding the things in our lives that have been put before him. May the Lord grant us repentance from things to which we cling and hold to other than trusting and loving God. May the Lord help us to be intentional in worshiping him, the only true God, in lifting our hands in worship, bowing our knees in prayer, interceding for others, because that's who God is for us. And this is eternal life, <laughs> that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The worship team come up. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you again. <laughs> you are a God to be feared. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And Lord, we bow at, at your word this morning. Not necessarily an easy word, but the truth is so freeing and so setting us free. So as we sit and stand before you here in this room, we worship you. We honor you, and we repent. Forgive us, Lord, for trusting in worthless idols of gold and silver and power, <laughs> reputation. We bow. We laid all our lives before you afresh this morning. And we will worship you and you alone. In Jesus' name, should we stand and worship together?